So the past two months, we've been walking through this Consuming Christ series, and today, uh, today's sermon is going to be in three parts. The first part is we're going to rather quickly review some of the important key parts of all of the sermons. Uh, the second thing is that Olivia is going to share a fictional story that kind of revolves around the communion table, and I'll talk more about that later. And then third, we're going to talk about um, McKizzy, who is uh, Mikelzadek. Melchizedek. Melchizedek. This morning I said it wrong, and now I can't say it right at all. So, um, And how he kind of plays into the idea of priesthood and blessing and Jesus and bread and wine today. So I'm going to pray for us, uh, for our minds, for our hearts, for our ears, and then we'll get rolling. God, thanks for this time, um, especially over the past couple months where we were able to look more intently at your word um, regarding communion, regarding your cup, regarding your table. Um, A lot of times we do things, uh, even within church, uh, just because they're in front of us and we do them, but we also want our minds and our hearts and our spirits to be engaged in them, God. And so as we look forward into this new season of remembering and participating and coming to your table with hope and expectation and in brokenness, God, uh, we pray that you would speak to us in a new way, in a fresh way. Uh, we remember that um, you did die this week, but that you also rose again, God, um, and how hard that is to sometimes grasp in our modern mindset and how that's all of what Christianity is, is that you died and that you rose again, and now you're uh, ascended on high in heaven next to the Father interceding for us. So we remember you today, God. We ask that you continue to speak to us, um, both in these spiritual big terms and also in the day-to-day in the flesh terms, God. Uh, We desire to be a people that are incarnational, that are living our faith out in our lives uh, by your grace uh, connected with your spirit. So thanks for your word. Thanks for this body that is cornerstone. Thanks for your body that was broken for us. We pray this in your name. Amen. So the Lord's table is the unique place where we together in covenantal oneness look back in thankful remembrance of Christ's once and for all sacrifice on the cross, where we realize that God is communing with us in the present and where we turn our eyes forward towards future hope. So it's this this place that we come and there's all of this time wrapped up in it, looking back, looking to the future, looking up, looking at the people around us. And so it's this very special place that we've been uh, on a journey for the past two months. So in regards to that journey, I'm going to go through six of the names for the Lord's table and just quickly review some of the key points in each of them as a reminder We often put ourselves into something, but then a week later, we forget about it. Or we put ourselves into something, and a month later, we forget about it. So this is just kind of to refresh us. This is uh, kind of my summary of things. I highly encourage you to go back and listen to all the sermons, um, if you missed any of them, and see what God would have to speak to you there. So we talked about communion out of uh, first, <clears throat> excuse me, first Corinthians 10, and we talked about how God is a jealous God, that there are all these tables that we could eat at, but the, the stuff that is at these tables isn't necessarily food that nourishes. In fact, it can be food that poisons us. And our God is a jealous God, and then where he's inclusive, that he wants to bring everybody in, he's also exclusive in the fact that he's like, this is the table that you need to eat at that we cannot participate in the table of the Lord, as Paul says, and, the part, and participate in the table of demons. But we do that a lot. 
is that we run to different things. Uh, last week, this actually came to mind when I was struggling in a relationship that I was having, um, and I was, I was feeding on bitterness. I kept going to this place, and I, I, I didn't realize it at first, but I was feeding on bitterness, and I needed to do something about that, and I was reminded that I can't feed on bitterness because bitterness is not going to be this thing that actually nourishes me. Bitterness is not going to be this thing that brings me spiritual life to love in this relationship. And so I needed to turn my eyes towards God. I needed to turn my eyes towards his table, towards the fact that he invites uh, me and this other person to the same place and to put bitterness aside and actually come to God's table. And the great thing about this, as the text says, is that, thanks, Gene, is that God provides a way out of temptation. We are tempted all the time to eat at different tables. But God, in his goodness and in his jealousy, doesn't just leave us to ourselves, that he provides this better table that is the table of the Lord for us to come and to eat healthily from, spiritually speaking, that it's not this food that is going to poison us. And so what happens in that we respond to this in a posture of the key word was participation, where remembering is really key to the Lord's Supper, as we'll get to next, but participation is uber key. It's not just we're remembering past events, but right here, right now, we are participating in the gospel with God, receiving his love and looking around at the people around us in order to love one another. And posture versus gesture, you've heard, Jake, I need you. Um, Can you come sit at this? uh, Posture versus gesture, you've heard Jay talk about this before, but posture versus gesture is the difference between being full on in a conversation illustratively speaking, as compared to ignoring certain things. So I could be, be like, Jake, how are you doing today? What was the hardest part of your week? Yeah. Yeah, yeah cool. And so this is me not posturing myself toward, towards Jake. And we do this a lot. I do this a lot where I'll ask, like, hey, Paul, how are you doing? And I apologize for that. It's kind of a cultural iniquity that we all suffer from right now. But a posture is that I'm full on in Jacob, that when I'm talking to him, when I'm asking him something, that I'm not distracted by all this other stuff around, which there is stuff to distract us, but my posture is towards him, as compared to gesturing towards him and asking him to fill some kind of social check mark, and yet just being on my phone checking to see when the snow is going to hit or is supposed to hit or what the latest polls are about, or how the, my basketball <laughs> bracket is going. So thanks, Jake. So there's a difference between gesturing and posturing. And when we come to the Lord's table, we want to posture ourselves in these ways. We can posture ourselves towards each other in a bad way, which means I'm full on at Jake, but I'm coming at him in hatred or in bitterness or in, or in violence even. But we want to posture towards the Lord's table in a good way. Not just gesture, not make it some kind of little thing that doesn't really matter. And so this idea of postures, which we'll get to even more as we go through, is really important. That as we come to the Lord's table, that we're fully engaged in it. That there's going to be all of these other things going on. And we're like, Jesus, I need you to speak to me at this place. I want to participate with you at this table with my brothers and sisters in Christ. So that's communion. We also looked at communion, at the Lord's cup and the Lord's table as the Passover meal. And we saw that God is merciful and just. He is a just God in that in the past he, and still in the future, but in the past he executed judgment against the slave-driving Egyptian culture. 
And so he was just and that he heard the people's cries and he took him and he liberated them out of that place. But he was also merciful and then he provided this way for his judgment to come upon the land. And yet there was this mercy that covered his people. There was this mercy that uh, the, by the blood of the lamb that covered them. And so God is this God that is jealous. God is this God that is merciful and he is just. And at the Passover meal, uh, we remember that we forget. That we forget these things that our deliverance is something that is needed. A lot of times we can think that I don't need forgiveness. I don't need deliverance. I don't need to be rescued out of the situation. But we do. And so when we come to the Lord's table, we also remember what God has done in the past and the fact that that's the same God, that just and merciful God. And we come knowing that he can deliver us. Even it might not be the way that we think he will deliver us, but that he can deliver us. And so the point of the Passover meal is the fact that we can't deliver ourselves. But worthy is the lamb that was slain that can deliver us. So then rather than trying to work our way out of this uh, uh, bondage and this uh, non, um, non-life-giving system that we're in, we turn our eyes to Christ. We turn our eyes to the Passover lamb, and we realize that he is the one that can deliver because we are unworthy in and of ourselves to rescue ourselves in any means. The scripture says that we are dead, but God makes us alive in him by the blood of the cross. And so when we come to the Lord's table, we come in a posture of participation. We also come in a posture of remembrance, remembering the things in God's story that have happened, remember the things in our story that have happened. And there's been a lot of junk that's happened in our story too, but that God is constantly pursuing and seeking us. So we come and we actively remember the things that God has done, specifically the thing that God did on the cross in delivering us from sin, death, and the grave. We talked about the bread and the cup in regards to the Last Supper, that how God is this covenant keeper, and we, as people that he has invited to this table, what do we do? We betray Judas, we deny Peter, and we abandon all the other disciples. And yet the beauty of who our God is, the God of the universe, is that he can't deny himself, that he is faithful to his promises, and one way or another he is going to see them through. And so even when we go and even when we bail, that God does not bail, and that Jesus, the good news is that Jesus didn't bail that night, that all of his friends were leaving him, and he was utterly alone. And yet at the Last Supper, he kept going, that he said, not my will, Father, but your will be done. I'm alone here. Friends have abandoned me. They, don't even, they say that they don't even know me. But I know of your love, God. I'm going to continue to walk the path that you have in front of me. And so Jesus is faithful and true, and this provides a good place of brokenness, a posture of brokenness in us. That because of his faithfulness and because of our sinful brokenness, we also come to the table in a state of brokenness and just like, I, I can't even, I can't even fathom, why would you do this? And when we really take on that posture where we remember, like, this is not anything that we did that we're being invited to this table, but it's all based on his faithfulness, that that breaks us as we come to the table. And that humbles us in a, in a completely good and satisfying way. And so we remember this at the Last Supper. 
We also talked about the bread and the cup in regards to the Eucharist and how God is gracious, that God is always thinking outside of himself, that he's thinking about others. The word Eucharist is one of the first words that the early church used for the bread and the cup. It comes from the Greek word eucharisto, which means thanksgiving. Within that word, there's a subset, which means grace. And so the Eucharist is this place where we can see God's graciousness. But unfortunately, me, we, we try to esteem ourselves most of the time, and we don't consider the people that are here in this body. And so we can oftentimes come to the table, and we can think of it as something that is um, just for us. That it's just about me and Jesus. And we don't take this posture of remembering of God's graciousness in it. And that God is for his people. That God is ultimately for his creation. Whether we're for him is another question. And so we come to this place. We remember how God is gracious. We remember how God broke his word. Meaning how God the Father broke his son in order to bring redemption to us. And we're like, what? Again? This kind of weird thing like, so does that mean he's a mean God and all this other stuff? But as we'll see in the next one, God is motivated by life and not by death. And so as we come here, we come in a posture of thanksgiving, not in a posture of entitlement. That of course I deserve this bread in the cup. I'm pretty awesome, if you guys haven't noticed. Yeah, I had some slip-ups. I'm going to say this, I might need to strike it from the record. Two things about that this week. First one, there was a certain political candidate um, that was sharing about his religious beliefs that um, was really disconcerting to me. Um, I'm not into politics. This isn't about politics. This is about theology. And one of the things he said is that him and God are good, and he doesn't really need to ask God for forgiveness because he lives a pretty decent life. That's not how we approach the table. He even included uh, a thought about the table, about how, well, I guess I'm asking for forgiveness when I come to the Lord's table. But there was just this, this offness that was there. The Lord's table is not a place of entitlement for us. It's a place that we remember our deep need, remember God's graciousness. When I was up in Vermont, I worked in Vermont at a boy's home for uh, a year and three months. And uh, during staff break, when we came back together, uh, the leader of the organization had us as staff, 20 of us, take communion together. And um, at that place, uh, me and another counselor were dogging on leadership. And it was this weird, I was 23 or something like that, and it was like this question, is God's ultimate plan about redemption or is it about transformation? This kind of stuff where looking back, I was like, I'm such an idiot. Just like, just like how important it was to me. You know what I mean? And not to say that those questions are important, obviously, but it was something where my posture towards that person as we were taking communion together was off, and I was coming to the table at that moment in an unworthy fashion. Not because of some sin that I was um, doing this or that in and of myself last week, but because I was not regarding the people that were around that table. And he was reading the text, and I was the first one to come up to the, the bread and the cup and I got down on my knees and I asked him for forgiveness and I talked to him in front of everybody. It was one of those things where just like the spirit of God was like, <sighs> and it wasn't like, <sighs> it was like <sighs> broken. And then this, and this has nothing to do with me. And then this started this chain reaction where, yeah, I've been posturing myself towards Mike in the wrong way, not considering him. 
And so it was this really beautiful experience that I remembered in my past of how the Spirit of God showed up at the table and how he invited me to be like, don't eat this unworthily. Think about the people that are around you. I am a gracious God. Come with thanksgiving and not this this idea of entitlement for the table. Next, fellowship meal. Jay talked a lot about this, how sacrifice and blood are absolutely key to the Eucharist, to the Last Supper, whatever you want to call it, to communion, but it's not the end goal. The end goal is to be at the table, is to have this fellowship meal. And so God is motivated by life. And so even when there's death, he is motivated by life. We, on the other hand, are often motivated by death, that we choose things that are not according to his will, that actually cause pain and suffering, or uh, cause uh, success in a way that is ungodly. But the good thing about all this is that God is able to use death for life, and he does that through Jesus. And so he provides this place where he can, he and I and he and you and he and we can come together and table together. That God is looking not just to be this bloodthirsty God, which he's not. He's not a bloodthirsty God, but that through the sacrifice of his son, the perfect lamb, the Passover lamb, that we can come together and fellowship and we can eat this meal together and we can be together and he can be like, Justin, this is off. What's going on here? And that we can commune with one another at this fellowship meal. And so we come in a posture of covenantal oneness, both with God and with one another. Again, the Lord's table is not just about me and Jesus. It's about God's covenant promise with his people, with his bride. And then finally, last week, Matt talked about the marriage supper, Revelation 19, and how God all throughout scripture bestows beauty upon beauty on his creation and on his bride, on his church. But over and over again, we see in the scripture that we use that beauty for ill-advised ways. And we use it and we play the whore. We use these beautiful things that God has given us. And we use them to get our own way, to manipulate, to engage in sin, to justify the ways that we walk in our lives. But then there's also this thing as we're going towards that God will clean by the blood of his son and consummate all things. That heaven and earth one day in the future will be completely one. And so it wells up in us this posture of hope. Because I don't know about your week, but my week wasn't perfect. Is anybody's week perfect this week? Three, four of you? Five? Okay. I'm just kidding. Nobody raised their hand. And so there's this idea that we don't want to under-realize what is happening right now. So Romans 6, it says that the same spirit that Jesus, um, that God rose Jesus from the dead with is now in us. That same spirit that God used to raise Jesus from the dead is in us as his kids. And so we don't want to under-realize that and say like, well, we're just here. We're going to wait until Jesus comes back and we're not going to interact with each other or culture. He'll make everything right in the future. No. On the other end of things, we don't want to have this over-realization of what is just not happening yet. That there is this future hope. If we actually over-realized in uh, 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy, Paul talks about uh, over-realized eschatology and the fact that there's these people, these two heretics, that are actually saying that the resurrection has already happened. The resurrection of the dead, not the resurrection of Jesus, but that the resurrection of the dead has already happened. And so it was actually thwarting hope you're like, wait a minute, so everything is the way that it should be? No, we feel that all the time. 
we feel the weight of death. We feel the weight of sin. We feel the weight of despair and cycling down at times. And so we neither, we want to grab onto the hope of this future consummation of all things, of heaven and earth, of all that stuff being cleaned. And we also want to grab onto the faith and the love that's right here, right now, by the Spirit of God and his church. And so when we come to the Lord's table, we come in a posture of hope. Yeah, things might, I might have had a great week, not perfect, great week, but man, there's so much more to come. There's so much more to come. Might have had a terrible week. There is so much more to come. And that actually helps. The future hope helps to inform our faithful presence right now as God resides with us, as God is working with us, as God is developing his body, developing his sons and daughters. So these are the six um, names that we kind of went through over the past six weeks. Again, just really quick. So that was a lot of kind of review information. There was a lot of teaching that happened over the past six weeks. Um, Olivia, if you want to come up and get ready. State of the Family 2010. We took communion. The reason I know that is because I was the one getting uh, the bread and the juice ready. And when I was upstairs and cut into the bread and broke the bread, um, a story came to me. And the story was of a 77-year-old woman, which I am not, in case that wasn't clear. Um, And so this story came out of me. It's a fictional story, obviously, because I'm not a 77-year-old woman. Um, And there's no moral of the story, but I thought it was important for us to interact around the table in a imaginative way, that there was a lot of kind of didactic teaching story through scripture. Uh, There's no moral of the story. This isn't about, also, this isn't about the types of church. This isn't about uh, communion theories as far as what actually happens to the bread and the juice. And this isn't about Jehovah's Witnesses, which you might pick up on or you might not. It's not about any of those things. What it is about, though, it's about intimacy. It's about remembering. It's about longing. It's about legalism and self-righteousness. It's about community. It's about bitterness. And it's about brokenness. So I've asked Olivia to read it again so it doesn't seem weird coming from a man, a woman's um, voice. Thanks for doing this. I am also not 77. Blood and bread. It's sacrilegious, I tell you, feeding the precious flesh of Christ to ducks. We're probably bringing curses upon our parish because of it, you know. Henry always listened to my Monday morning rants while catching up on his Sunday paper. He took his coffee black. I knew this. But for 35 years, I made it with half a teaspoon of sugar. He knew this. Black coffee connotates something strong, which Henry was but he was also something of the endearing kind. It'll be okay, Maggie, he said. Besides, it's better than throwing it away and wasting it. Right after Henry served his time in the service, we got married and moved to the south side of the city. It was a more run-down part of of the town at the time, with little to do besides church events, porch dwelling, and the occasional ten-cent matinee where Cary Grant or Rock Hudson would keep us company for a bit. But we liked it. It wasn't long before my Henry was asked by the Fifth Street Parish to do some light janitorial work in his spare time 
and also to prepare and set up the communion elements once a month. Every second Saturday afternoon, I would go with him to the market to pick up some low-alcohol content wine from Jenny's and then walk across the street to the bakery for some wafers. The rector had specific instruction on what to buy, from whom to buy it, and how much to get. It would take only five minutes, but be drawn out to nearly an hour as we talked with Phyllis and Paul and Mabel. We only saw them once a month, and this was our time to catch up. Nothing much changed in our stories. In fact, Henry had a knack for attracting conversations that we had heard ten times before, but that others didn't remember telling. My Henry always listened as though it was the first time, even though it was wrote to him, able to say it better than the originator. He did that with a lot of things in his life. Afterward, we went back to the parish, made sure everything was set for the morning, and then took our place on the Davenport in the sitting room for a moment and sat quietly before going home. There was something about the church that made it seem alive when it was only the two of us sitting there. Back at breakfast, I continued my discourse. I just don't understand why Reverend John insists on the same amount of wafers every month. He knows we don't use half of them. Maybe he's hopeful that more people will come one communion Sunday and join the church, he said. We wouldn't want to run out on them. How would we feel if that nice young couple who just began coming showed up and there was no supper for them? That wouldn't be very hospitable. Besides, the ducks like the bread. Henry said this with his half-smile that would make me want to pop him if it didn't look so good on him. Henry, you know as well as I do that as soon as a family joins the parish, two people die within a month's end. The congregation has been the same size for the 35 years we've been there. I remember this conversation because it was the last one I had with my Henry. He shuffled to his part-time job later that morning and was hit by a car who never looked back. The injuries themselves were bad, but in the end, it was the loss of his somewhat rare blood type that took Henry away from me. The doctors could possibly have saved him if they had had more of that type in storage, but they didn't. We didn't even get to say goodbye to each other. That's all I have to say about that. Once things settled down from the funeral and family visiting, Reverend John thought it comforting to hand over the communion set up to me. Around this time, he also decided to change from wafers to bread chunks, saying that he liked the imagery of the pieces all knowingly coming from one loaf, a very unifying symbol that we share in the same body that is Christ. All I know is that it was $2 cheaper for a tedious amount of extra work. Just like that, what, whom, and how much, there was now a certain way to cut the fresh bread, according to the rector, into perfect-sized chunks. If too big, it would take more than one bite. If too small, it would be difficult to dip in the communion cup and not enough wine would be present. On top of this, no crust was to be present. That would require extra chewing, God forbid. And the bread was not to be smashed in the process as to make it more dense. This is how communion was pre prepared and served for the next 20 years. In a church like ours, it took some time for the parishioners to make the change, but once we got used to it, it was like it had always been this way. Until today. I sat alone in the last, second-to-last pew on the east side of the building where the stained-glass window of St. Jude, patron saint of lost causes, illuminates about mid-morning, and like clockwork, right around the time we sing a hymn of response to the message. Communion starts, and people slowly go to the front to partake of the wine and blood, the bread and flesh of my Jesus. I look down and to the side as though I'm meditating or praying, 
but I'm really focusing out of the corner of my eye, noticing the reactions to the bread that is cut bigger than usual. I notice multiple faces with strange looks on them, knowing something is off, but not quite sure what it is. I see a few people make a gag reflex or hear a cough, signifying that the flesh of Christ was too hard for them to swallow today. They keep themselves well composed as not to disturb the service or bring embarrassment upon themselves. We all get used, got used to the blood-soaked bread going down easy after one chew. We didn't expect it to choke us. We did expect it to follow routine. All of this, though, was mere shenanigans, an appetizer to the main course. You see, Bill Similek was a deacon at the Fifth Street Parish. He was a mostly well-mannered, lifelong bachelor who owned his paint business outside of town. We went to high school together, though never really knew each other except for the time or two he tried to get fresh with me. I always had the feeling he had something for me. Henry would say, Of course he has something for you. You're beautiful, Maggie. Bill stopped making any subtle flirtatious moves once Henry passed. About five years after the accident, I heard by way of the Main Street hair parlor gossip that Bill Similek was in the hospital and wasn't doing well. Apparently, for religious reasons, he was refusing any blood transfusions, though it probably didn't matter, according to Betty Sue, who worked at the hospital because of his rare blood type. He ended up recovering fine, but I later came to find that he had the same type as my Henry. I put two and two together and figured out that if Bill Similek wouldn't receive blood, he wouldn't give any either. When you spend any decent amount of time with a person, you pick up on patterns and nuances of life. This goes the same for a small group of people if you pay attention close enough, and this attention to the parishioners is what started the main course on its way. I knew that Mary wouldn't be here today because Friday night bingo was a blowout for her and she wouldn't have money to put in the offering plate. I knew that the Checkets were visiting their son's church this weekend and that the Murphys were on vacation. I also knew Philip wouldn't take communion because he weaseled his way into a few extra pain meds at the pharmacy last night while I was picking up milk. Even weasels have consciences. There was somewhat of a guess as to how many other oddballs might be missing. I simply chose one, hoping to be right. I also knew that I wouldn't be taking communion that day. All this mattered because Bill Similek was always the last one to take communion. He waited until everyone else had gone, some type of humble pride in putting others before himself and letting others know. I stopped counting after the first few people and just listened and watched those before him wrestle with the enormity of community, communion that day. Then, on cue, like a stage play, it happened. Bill Similek looked into the bread basket and exchanged views with Reverend John, and everything fell into place. Still composed but confused, the Reverend leaned in and whispered, I'm sorry, William. There's no more left for you. Nobody else noticed, but the verbal damnation is crisp and clear to me in perfect view of the pronouncement from lips to ears. I looked toward St. Jude and touched my lapel, where the brooch that Henry bought for me for our first anniversary resides. My rings no longer fit my withered hands, though I can still feel them at times. The service finishes as usual, and I sigh to myself that I'm tired of this place. I want to go see my Henry. Reverend John makes his way towards me now in no such rush. Good morning, Margaret, he says in his nice, normal, pastoral tone. 
Would you mind having a word with me in my office? I'm going to miss feeding those ducks this afternoon. Thanks, Olivia. Can we give a hand to Olivia? So Jay's going to officially wrap up our communion series next week and talking about New Covenant. Um, I wanted to mention one other thing um, that's pretty cool that, I, um, that came to mind in the past couple weeks. Uh, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 14, and then you can also put your thumb or your finger, your bookmark, uh, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. I'm just going to read two short, short, short sections, and there's a whole lot more about this. But Genesis 14, um, Abraham goes to rescue Lot. There's all of these kings at war with one another. These, this set of kings attacks this set of kings, and they lose, and so they kind of became part of the same fighting king thing. And then they come, and they uh, come into Lot's territory, and they kidnap Lot, and one of Lot's people get away and tell Abram, Abraham, that, hey, uh, your relative is taken captive. And so Abraham has alliances with a couple other people. He goes, he conquers, he drives out those other kings, he rescues Lot, and then this happens. Uh, Genesis 14, verse 17. I'm also going to say these words right. After his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer, And the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, which is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, is that right, Jake? Yes. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. If you flip over to Hebrews end of chapter 6, verse 20. Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this king, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning or of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. And so this, uh, this character, Melchizedek, he's enigmatic. He's mentioned three times in Scripture, once there, once in one of the Psalms, and once in Hebrews. And part of Hebrews, as you've heard us say before from the pulpit, is that he's, um, the writer is trying to convince that Jesus is the better everything. And so one of those things is that he's trying to say that while the Levitical uh, system of sacrifice was great and everything else, Jesus' priesthood actually predates all that, and he uses this man, Melchizedek, as a reference point. The first time that the word priest appears in Scripture, it's not with the Levites. It doesn't have to do with blood. 
It has to do with bread and wine, the king of peace and the king of righteousness. And so there's this parallel that is happening here. Um, Thank you, Stephanie. There's this parallel that is happening here. So God establishes covenants. God, the Father, God, the Creator, establishes covenants. He establishes, on one hand, this covenant with Abraham, um, uh, Genesis 12, Genesis 14, Genesis 16, circumcision, the stuff that um, Jay talked about, about cutting the animals in half and walking through it. He's the one that establishes covenant. He also establishes the new covenant, Jeremiah 31. He says, there will come a day when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel, that I will do this. I will make this new covenant. So God makes these covenants. But there are these people, these key people that are covenant affirmers, covenant um, kind of people that are, how do I put this? Covenant figures. They're covenant figures. And so Jesus and Melchizedek are both these covenant figures. Obviously, Jesus is above, but there's parallels here. And so they're both called the king of righteousness. They're both called the king of peace. And what happens in our story of Genesis is that Melchizedek confirms the covenant, that he comes and he blesses uh, Abraham after his victory. He says, blessed be you, Abraham, the God of the God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God, the possessor of heaven and earth. And so he confirms this covenant to Abram. But then on the other side of things, in this new covenant, we have Jesus Christ, who, according to the book of Hebrews, does two main things. He guarantees and he mediates this new covenant. And that he's the one God establishes, but he's the one that's actually bringing it to fruition. So these words mean here of guarantees and mediates that it means that he answers to anyone by his life and that he secures something which otherwise would not be obtained. And so there's this parallel between these two kings of righteousness, these two kings of peace. And then we think about what Melchizedek brings as an offering, that he doesn't bring blood, but as a priest, he blesses. And what does he do? He brings bread and he brings wine. And what does Jesus do? He comes He blesses us, he gives thanks, and he breaks the bread, and he brings us bread, and he brings us wine, which are his body, and which are his blood. And this is how he blesses us as our priest, as our king of righteousness, as the king of peace. And this is the first time in the Genesis account where priest um, is used. Again, going back to that table motif. That sacrifice and blood, absolutely essential. Nobody's saying that. The first time a priest shows up, it's to bless with bread and with wine. And Jesus does the same to the nth degree, to the nth degree. And so when we come to the Lord's table, Paul says that we proclaim his death. And this isn't a commandment that we proclaim. He says that if we come to the Lord's table in the right posture, we are proclaiming. Like, it's not like you come to the Lord's table. Now, Jake, I want you to proclaim it. Proclaim! It's not like that. It's that by doing this, you are proclaiming the Lord's death and how his death and his resurrection, they're everything. And this proclaims it not just to one another. This also proclaims it to the heavenly realms. And the way that we come in our posture of spirit with one another and in participation and remembrance and hope and uh, thanksgiving and all of those things matters. Do they ultimately matter? 
God ultimately matters, but the way we come matters. And so we're proclaiming so much so that Paul actually says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11 that you're not actually celebrating the Lord's table. Because when you come, you're not coming with the right posture. You're not considering one another. And I say this to your detriment. I do not commend you in these things. And so we want to be rock solid and have our feet not on the sand of ourselves, but on the rock of who Jesus is and that he's a covenant keeper and all of that. But there's also this posture that we come to the table with. Because this is a sacred place as we remember our Lord and our Savior. There is this posture and we proclaim We are proclaiming in this spot. So today is, what is today as far as uh, Holy Week? Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. Um, It's easy for a posture to change like that. It's easy for a posture, unfortunately, to change like that. Maybe it's because we're actually gesturing towards something and we're not actually postured towards it. But so Palm Sunday, Jesus comes into Jerusalem, makes his way to Jerusalem, he says, hey, get me a donkey. I need to come. I'm going to ride this donkey through. I'm not going to be on a uh, Roman steed. Steed a horse? Kind of? Okay. This war horse. I'm not going to come in on a war horse. I'm going to fulfill the scripture that your king comes. And there's people all over the place. They're like, yes, Jesus is coming. He's going to give us victory. They uh, wave palm branches and palm leaves, which is a symbol of victory. It was also probably at that time a little bit of a symbol of uh, Israel's flag, which is interesting. And they're like, yes, the king is coming. Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. Save us, save us, save us, they shout. And they shout this. So Hosanna means deliver us. Hosanna means I praise you because you're going to save me. But then something happens during the week. So, little uh, participation here. This section over here, I would like you guys out loud, not together, like individually, and don't make it a chant. I want you guys to just keep shouting out, save us, save us, save us, okay? Not yet. Middle section, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Try not to do a chanty. Like, pretend you're in a crowd. Pretend you're at your favorite, I don't know, basketball game or whatever, and I don't know. And don't do it like, nah, 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 nah. Okay, pretend you're not at church for a second. Um, this section over here, glory to God in the highest, okay? So, Jesus is coming through. Okay, And then people start yelling, save us, save us, save us. And they're like, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And they're glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest. And yet this thing happens, this thing happens in the middle of it, that after all of this Holy Week, Jesus gets taken to the cross. And those two words, instead of save us, that are being spoken, are changed into crucify him, crucify him. Crucify him! Crucify him! And the crazy part about that is our posture changes in one moment from God save us to crucify him. And the crazy part about grace is that God saves us through crucifying Christ. And our posture can change like that. God is faithful, God is covenant keeper. He continues. So much so that it's by his cross that he makes peace. It's by his cross that he makes peace. By the blood of the cross, he makes peace. And that all those that come to him will find rest ultimately. Maybe if it doesn't feel like this week. I didn't feel rested in Jesus this week. 
In fact, some of the stuff I experienced as a member of the gospel kingdom in working out that gospel was actually really hard. I actually suffered this week, which is part of being with Christ. But he saves us and that we're with him in these spots. And so this king of peace is entering in. This king of righteousness is entering in. And remember, those two things are important. Remember when we looked at 1 John. We always want to remember the, the part of 1 John that says God is love, right? What's the other part of 1 John? God is light. See, we didn't even remember that. God is light. It was hanging on the wall for six months. God is love, king of peace. God is light, king of righteousness. This is the fullness of who he is. And it's by the blood of the cross that we can have peace, that he brings peace. And so we come to him in brokenness. We come to him in thanksgiving. We come to him remembering others in the body of Christ, not just ourselves. And we thank him and we praise him. So we're going to end um, this morning with a little bit more of worship, Hosanna songs, to you, King Jesus. But also remember, we're singing this today. What's our story on Friday? What's our story on Thursday? This is part of being part of God's uh, people and remembering these things. It's part of walking through the story, both remembering it then, but right now. How am I, Justin Boyer, both saying, God, save us. You are worthy of praise. Get away from me. I don't know you. God, I need your grace. I need a new vision and a fresh vision of your cross, which is sufficient in all things. I just want to invite you to stay standing for our benediction and I want to draw your attention to uh, a silent art piece that's on the wall behind me here. Uh, During the service, while Justin was teaching, Olivia was reading, and even as we've been singing, uh, I was drawn to what probably most of us would think is just a blank spot on the wall up here on the right. Um, So there's a, you know, the spot there, spotlight, is shining a spot on the black wall, and if you look up uh, in the right corner, it's just, I mean, even from the front row area, it's black, it's dark. If you look in the light where the, the light's hitting, though, you, uh, you can see some, some definition. And especially this time of year, but with God, there's this tension of, you know, the light, the darkness, when I think about Jesus, he's both king and criminal. He's, as far as like this time of year, Easter, innocent criminal. Uh, he's received, he's rejected, he's lion, he's lamb. And uh, I think even, you know, there's, there's a lot of questions that can happen that, that can come to mind, like why, why, you know, why, why did he, why did he? And I mean, we have like, the end story we have. But those times of darkness, when it's tough to understand, and even Jesus knowing what it's like to be alone. In the darkness, up in the right corner, you can't really see anything. And you might think there's nothing happening, it's just kind of void and empty, and there's not really much definition or any kind of design there. But if you come down to where the light is shining, You can see a lot of design. You can see where there are materials there, elements, hardware, uh, pieces that are joined together. 
you can see the work of a painter there in that spot. And so I think uh, that I was just really drawn to as capturing the essence of, of God, his son, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit. Um, I want to join with you and ask you to join with me in praying as we close the service this morning. Father, uh, we come to you in thankfulness, God, for your son, Jesus. Father, we thank you for his body, his blood. Uh, God, for these six weeks of uh, God coming into a time of teaching, in particular, Lord, of remembering. Uh, God, cause us to continue to remember, Lord, that we would be aware of our posture with you, toward you, and God, to have uh, just overwhelming, thankful hearts that you're a God who desires us and desires us, Lord, to know us at the invitation of coming to a table to commune together, uh, to know us, to be known. And we say thank you. And so Cornerstone, uh, just a prayer for you is that together you would go, we would go in covenantal oneness, looking back with thankful remembrance of Christ on the cross, his once and for all sacrifice, and that God communes with his people now, right now, that our eyes are forward in hope. May God bless you, keep you, go with God.